you to turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 tonight, uh, the suffering Messiah, what has been called the, uh, the crucifixion psalm, Psalm 22. We are studying what are called the Messianic Psalms, working our way through. It's going to be a while since we have about uh, 25 of them or so. But uh, they're called Messianic Psalms because uh, they are a psalm that has prophecies regarding the Messiah. So they're, they're prophetic psalms, uh, prophetic in terms of the Messiah. And right at the top of the list of the psalms that we call Messianic Psalms is Psalm 22. Uh, in Psalm 22, we have at least 13 prophetic statements that are shown to be fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. And uh, let me give you a sample of this. Uh, there's a lot of details here, but uh, note uh, all the way through here. You got uh, verse 1 and how it corresponds to, and this is what we'll look at in uh, Matthew 27, 46. And then all the way down, all the way through here, right down the list. And so, tremendously interlaced with uh, New Testament scripture. Prophesied in Psalm 22, fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, ties Psalm 22 to the crucifixion of Christ. And for this reason, Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel. Uh, lots of things called the fifth gospel. Can you think of anything else in the Old Testament that's called the, the fifth gospel other than Psalm 22? Isaiah 53, you get a gold star for the day. That's exactly right, Isaiah 53. But Psalm 22, also called the fifth gospel, the gospel according to David, the psalm of the cross, the crucifixion psalm, it's called all of these things. William MacDonald says, Approach this psalm with the utmost solemnity and reverence, because you have probably never stood on holier ground before. Psalm 22 reads as though someone stood at the foot of the cross and recorded the events firsthand, when in actuality it was written by David 1,000 years before it happened. Although the details in the psalm clearly depict death by crucifixion, yet it was written many years before the Romans even started using crucifixion, before it even came on the scene. The prophetic nature of this is powerfully authentic and convincing. Uh, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 form what is called a trilogy, with Psalm 22 presenting the sufferings of Christ, Psalm 23, the shepherding of Christ, and Psalm 24, the sovereign reign of Christ. It's been said that Psalm 22 presents the good shepherd dying for the sheep, Psalm 23, the shepherd caring for the sheep, and Psalm 24, he reigns over the sheep. Well, a basic understanding of prophetic messianic truth is that the Messiah would suffer and that he would also reign. And this is fundamental to properly understanding the main message of the Bible that centers in the Messiah. You see, Psalm 22 presents both the suffering and then the ultimate reign of the Messiah. And these two themes are the main themes that are prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. Notice, for example, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus Christ is teaching. And he says here uh, to the disciples, 
He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, suffering and glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these two major themes he touches on here, the suffering and the glory theme. We see the same emphasis here in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So we see that that same uh, theme, that, that double theme of sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So this is a key prophetic theme and pattern in the Old Testament scriptures. The sufferings in the kingdom glory that would relate to the Messiah. And both are clearly found in Psalm 22. So let's get there. Psalm 22, uh, we have the, over the heading, um, it says there, To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. So David is the author of this psalm, as he is half of the psalms approximately, 75 that we know of. And uh, again, he's the author of this messianic psalm. It's often been said that the Messiah was David's uh, favorite subject, and really (laughs) that seems to be the case. The New Testament clearly refers to David as a prophet, Acts 2, Acts 4, even Acts 1. Uh, The deer of the dawn evidently refers to a known tune back in, in this day to which the psalm was set. And then we get into it. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? This was quoted by Christ in the ninth hour of the day. That would be 3 p.m. Been on the cross for six hours. This comes right towards the end, right before he dies. As seen in Matthew 27, 46 and also Mark 15, 34. At this point, darkness had come over the whole land. And the sin of the whole world was resting fully upon Christ. Now, this was not an intellectual question, but rather a rhetorical expression of deepest anguish of human suffering. This was when God made Christ's soul an offering for sin, as it says in Isaiah 53.10. No one could help Christ in this endeavor, not even the Father. This expresses the loneliness of the cross. Even God the Father did not intervene. Jesus, as our Savior, suffered and died all alone. You know, that's what hell's all about, really. Suffering for all, all alone, for all eternity. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people there, but I'm not sure there's a lot of fellowship going on there. Isolation from God is ultimately a picture of hell. In a sense, Christ experienced hell for us so that we would not have to. Abandonment by God is the worst thing that can happen to someone. Christ was forsaken by God so that we might never be forsaken. The cry of why is the fourth word from the cross. We talk about the seven words or the seven sayings from the cross. We won't go through them, but... uh, 
maybe they're not up there. That's okay. Well, I'll just tell you them. Uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That was the first one. The second one was, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third one was, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And then the fourth one, that's the one we're looking at here in Psalm uh, 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth one was, I thirst. The sixth one, it is, it is finished. And the seventh one, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 2. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. This, in effect, answers the why question of verse 1. God is a holy God, and he cannot look upon sin. In taking upon himself the sin of the world, God the Father, in his holiness, left the Son in isolation in a way that we cannot comprehend. But we do know the why. And that's the verse you're looking at here. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, Christ didn't become a sinner, but he took on himself, his holy self, our sin. To be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took all our sin. We get all his righteousness. That's a grace deal. Verse 4. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. When you are really down and looking for deliverance, where do you go? Well, David looked and prophetically depicted Christ looking to how God has delivered his people in the past. He's a delivering God. That's what he does. The pattern was that they trusted in God and he delivered them. This is the history of God dealing with his people. This is the story of Hebrews chapter 11. But in contrast here, this experience depicted is one of abject scorn. Went through a a season where it's like, okay, God, you are the God of deliverance. Where are you? Verse 6, in contrast, our fathers trusted in you. You delivered them. But, verse 6, here's my experience. I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Christ, in going through this, did not know immediate deliverance, but rather was allowed by God to suffer the depths of bitter suffering and humiliation. Part of the suffering of the cross involved terrible, indescribable humiliation. Worms. Uh, How much value is a worm? Not much. I mean... That's the picture here. I am a worm. I I have no value in the eyes of people. That's the idea. Reproach of men, despised by the people. He felt the reproach, the scorn. They didn't appreciate or value him at all. He was despised by the people, as predicted in Isaiah 53. They mocked and insulted 
his trust in the Lord. Look, here's the one who claimed he was trusted in God. They saw it as a total sham, worthy of being mocked. And we read about this in Matthew. Let's see. Can I go to the next slide? There we go. Uh, Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Oh, yeah. What a loser claimed to be the Messiah. He trusted in God. Verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Claimed to save others. Can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Complete mockery. Not only did Christ feel forsaken, completely forsaken by God, but also by men. Not only was he forsaken, but forsaken with contempt and ridicule. But Christ, in bolstering his faith, not only looked back at history and what God had done for his people who trusted him, but also on how God had seen him through from the very beginning of life until now, humanly speaking. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Again, this was David's experience on some level, but it really prophetically foreshadowed Christ's experience on a deeper level. In his mind, he reviewed how God had sustained him and preserved him from the very beginning of his earthly experience. He learned of trust from his earliest days. He learned of trust. He knew the wonderful experience of fully trusting in God, and so he pleads again for God to be close. Verses 11 through 18 now present the anguish and distress of the cross in vivid language. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. The sense is that all is so dire that the only hope is God, and yet God is far from him. Imagine Jesus experiencing this. There is none to help. I mean, when God won't intervene, to help, that is desperate beyond comprehension. This was Christ's experience on the cross, humanly speaking. An experience we as his people will never know because he has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Bashan, east of the Jordan River, was a rich pasture area known for its strong bulls. These who were afflicting Christ were in positions of power like bulls. And they were encircling him like big, strong bulls coming at him. They had the upper hand. Trouble was near and none could stop these strong bulls from inflicting their pain. Verse 13, they gape at me with their mouths like a a raging and roaring lion. They were not only like bulls, but like raging, roaring lions. Like a ferocious and and merciless attack. It was brutal beyond imagination. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. This was the agony of bone dislocation, although none were broken, as we see in another psalm. The experience was one of violent internal disorder that affected all his internal organs. My strength, verse 15, is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. All his human strength was dried up. He was exhausted with thirst and brought to the very point of death. But note he knew, he still knew that God had brought him to this point. Did you catch it? You have brought me. You, God, have brought me to the dust of death. In his human experience, even at this point, he still trusted in the sovereignty of God over the situation. He knew, as it says in Isaiah 53.10, that it pleased the Lord, that's Yahweh, to crush him, to put him to grief. This is crushing. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, a common derogatory way that the Jews referred to the Gentiles was to call them dogs. Here, the Gentile executioners, the, the Roman soldiers, and the Gentile governmental powers behind them are in view. Most believe when it talks about then the congregation of the wicked, it probably makes reference to the Jews with special emphasis on the priests, scribes, and the elders who are the, the principal ones behind the scene bringing this about. Now, there's been lots of discussion over how to understand this last phrase here <clears throat> when it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. Uh, the debate is over how to take the words they pierced, which in some manuscripts reads like a lion. However, the Moody Bible Commentary presents five cogent reasons that it should properly be understood as they pierced, including that three out of the four most ancient manuscripts read they pierced. Um, Moody Bible Commentary therefore says, Therefore the suffering Messiah's words predict his own death by crucifixion at a time when crucifixion was unknown. What a remarkable prophecy. This is prophetically spoken in reference to the Messiah many years prior to the time when crucifixion was utilized as a death penalty and 1,000 years before the time of Christ. So the depiction is a clear reference to the nails which pierced Christ's hands and feet, which is paralleled in the Old Testament only by the prophetic text of Zechariah 12.10, which says, They will look on me whom they pierced. After his resurrection, Christ said to his disciples, Behold my hands and feet. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. It's a real emphasis on them, on them staring at him. Must have been a, a terrible sight. What is depicted here is a state of emaciation. Uh, the sense of counting the bones is that they were on display in such a grotesque way so as to cause people to stare. It was total humiliation as well as physical agony. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now again, all four gospels depict these Roman soldiers dividing up Christ's garments among themselves. For example, John chapter 19 says this, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Christ, took his garments, made four parts to each soldier apart, also the tunic. 
Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Charles Ryrie aptly says, all these details of Jesus' crucifixion were carried out by people who had no knowledge of these predictions. These Roman soldiers, they didn't know the scriptures, had no idea what they were doing was exact fulfillment of Psalm 22. This speaks to the awesome truth of both the inspiration of the scriptures and God's power and wisdom as the all-powerful, all-knowing God. Psalm 22, 14 through 18 presents a graphic picture of death by crucifixion. And then in verses 19 through 21, we have a return to the request for deliverance and prophetically this anticipates this being answered in the resurrection. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. There were no others to help, and so the appeal is once again made to the Lord, to Yahweh, to not be far, to hasten to help and for deliverance. The sword is a symbol of governmental power. And again, the dog is symbolic of Gentiles. So in view is the ruthless Gentile government responsible for carrying out the crucifixion. Verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Here again is power which is symbolically portrayed as the lion's mouth and the horns of the wild oxen. Horns in the Bible consistently represent a position of strength and power. Christ here prophetically is portrayed as asking for deliverance from the ravaging powers behind his cross experience. And then suddenly at the end of the verse, everything changes. Suddenly he goes from seeking God for deliverance over and over again in the preceding verse to now saying, you have answered me. And from here on out, the whole tone of the chapter changes. It goes from a depiction of abject agony, crying out for help, to now one of triumph and victory. Bible Knowledge Commentary again says, in the Hebrew, the last part of verse 21 breaks off in the middle of the prayer and states, you have heard. So what happened between the save me at the start of the verse and the you have answered me at the conclusion of the verse? What happened? The resurrection, that's what happened. Christ's prayer for deliverance was answered in the resurrection. And after that, everything is different. Here's what we have as we break this verse down. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, these powers that be. And we have the resurrection, you have answered me. This, this here anticipates the resurrection. You have answered me. 
Moody Bible Commentary says, although there is no specific reference to the resurrection, in light of the references to death in the previous verses, dust of death, verse 15, they pierced my hands and feet, verse 16, this seems to hint at a miraculous resurrection. And I think what follows makes it very clear that the resurrection is in view because the New Testament specifically ties Christ declaring God's name to the assembly of the brethren to the truth of the resurrection. And that's what follows. William MacDonald says, verse 21b provides a transition from plaintive pleadings to jubilant triumph. The sufferings of the Lord Jesus are now forever past. His redeeming work has been finished. The cross has been exchanged for the crown. Hebrews 5, 7 who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. We should note that all answered prayer is not necessarily answered in the way we think it should be or that we desire. God did not answer in the sense of preventing Christ's death on the cross. Rather, he answered in the resurrection. But note the all-important point is he did answer. He answered in a more glorious fashion than had he merely prevented his death. I think many prayers for healing will be answered, but they will be answered in the resurrection. God answers prayer, but he does not always answer in the way we might envision In the end, it's always more glorious and better than we can even ask or think. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. This is on the other side in in the answer. Verse 22 is quoted almost verbatim in Hebrews 2.12 as Jesus prays for deliverance in the resurrection. Notice what we have there. Hebrews 2. For it was fitting... For him, speaking of Christ here, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. So this here connects back to what he is talking about in verses 10 and 11 related to the resurrection. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, the true people who reverence that is fear God are called to praise God for what he has done in both the sufferings and resurrection of Christ. And the reason for this is clearly stated in verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. God hears and answers the prayer of his own who cry to him for deliverance. And this was most certainly realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the response of the delivered is to praise God amongst the people for what he has done. 
Verse 26 now denotes a change in emphasis. William MacDonald says, In the last six verses of the psalm, there is a change of speaker. Now the Holy Spirit speaks, describing the ideal conditions that will prevail during the peace and prosperity of the millennial kingdom. Verse 26, The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The Messianic kingdom is often portrayed as a time of feasting. Celebration. Thus, those who seek and praise the Lord will live forever in the kingdom. Verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Out of the truth of the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Christ comes the the ultimate rule of Jesus Christ. Initially, all who go into the kingdom will be converts who have turned to the Lord. And in the kingdom, all the families of the nations shall come and worship Jesus. All of this is the outcome of answered prayer in the resurrection. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. In that day, the well-to-do... The prosperous of the earth shall eat in celebration and worship of him. All the mortals of the earth shall join in. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. In the kingdom, future generations will serve the Lord as from generation generation. To generation, they share the truth of what God has done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, MacDonald says, Psalm 22 begins with the fourth word from the cross, the atonement cry. It ends with the words, He has done this, which have exactly the same meaning as Christ's seventh word from the cross. It is finished. Down through the centuries of time, The good news will be passed from one generation to another with grateful wonder that Christ has done it all. How fitting that the psalm of the cross concludes with the words, He has done this. Indeed, He has. It is finished. What Christ has accomplished in the cross has eternal kingdom ramifications for all His people. And we shall forever praise him for what he has done, that he has done this. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. And God does it that men should fear or reverence before him. And as seen in Psalm 22 What has been accomplished by Jesus is God's doing. He has done this. And what can be added to that? Nothing. Except maybe, amen. 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 All right, let's uh, stand and have our closing song.